Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mohscollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello again. This is Dr. Thomas Knackstead once again for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. Today I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Gerardo Marazzo from the Skin Surgery Center in Hickory, North Carolina. Dr. Marazzo and I are going to be discussing a study that was performed by him together with Drs. Uh, Brodlin and Zatelli during uh, his time in Pittsburgh. Gerardo, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Thomas. Now, why don't you introduce our audience to um, sort of the title of your uh, paper and the conversations or ideas that prompted you all during your fellowship to study uh, your subject matter. Sure. So the, the paper was titled Clinical Outcomes in High-Risk Squamous Cell Carcinoma Patients Treated with Mohs Micrographic Surgery Alone. My interest in high-risk squamous cell carcinoma started in residency at UT Southwestern uh, and continued into fellowship. And at that time, the Brigham and Women's staging system was just starting to gain notoriety. And one of the things that I noticed in the populations that they validated the new staging system in, the significant majority of those patients were not treated with Mohs. And so I said, now we have a valid way to all have a common language to identify and stage high-risk squamous cell carcinomas. Now let's see what our treatment modality is capable of. Do the same poor outcomes occur in a Mohs-specific population? When I was beginning fellowship, I expressed this, this clinical question to, to doctors Zatelli and Broadlin, and they were very supportive of the notion. And so, you know, from their significant uh, experience with high-risk squamous cell carcinoma, there were thousands of charts for me to review. So I just identified as many high-risk squamous cell carcinomas, both by the Brigham and Women's. I used AJCC seventh stage, and also as many high-risk features that I felt we could identify in chart review, specifically tumor location and, and other such factors. And I was able to gather 647 high-risk squamous cell carcinomas and just saw what happened in follow-up. And we found that invasion beyond the subcutaneous fat and poor histologic differentiation were two factors that really stood out on multivariate analysis. And they tended to convey much greater risk than the other factors that were commonly identified. The other important thing that we discovered is that Mohs micrographic surgery, in fact, did provide very good rates of, or very low rates of local recurrence, nodal metastasis, and disease-specific death. And so, you know, I think the two takeaways are that we're taking very good care of these patients, that 
most micrographic surgery may very well be the best way, and I feel confidently that it is the best way to treat high-risk squamous cell carcinoma. And also, when you, when you start to see patients with these two clinical factors, invasion beyond subcutaneous fat and poor histologic differentiation, that should really raise your concern that this patient may be uh, slated to have a poor outcome. Fascinating. And I think that um, it really is interesting how it's really two studies in one. The first being, are we validating the same high-risk features that others have identified? And the second, is our treatment um, the treatment of choice? And, you you know, I find it um, so interesting that histologic differentiation, especially poor histologic differentiation, um, is seen on most um, single-center studies and even the multi-center studies as a poor prognostic feature. And I know a lot of your work was um, done right around the time where the transition happened from the seventh to the eighth stage of the AJCC, which basically adopted a lot of the uh, work done by Dr. Schmoltz and the Brigham and Women group. But because it was so irregularly or so inaccurate, it really didn't adapt differentiation as one of their staging criteria. So for our listeners not as familiar with the eighth edition of the AJCC, we are now looking at tumor size as either less than or greater than two centimeters or less than or greater than uh, four centimeters, bone erosion and perineural invasion, or then gross cortical bone and marrow invasion or skull base invasion. And poor histologic differentiation, because it's not reliably reported, is unfortunately lost in the staging system. But I think what I'm hearing uh, you say is that it's still very much used in your practice. It's still very much used in Pittsburgh and in my practice as what we consider a very high-risk feature. Yeah, to, to me, poor dif- and, and this is not a thought unique to me, but anaplasia serves as a marker for mutation burden. The amount is a visual cue to just how de-differentiated, how many mutations a tumor cell has. And the way I think of it is poor differentiation does continue to play a pretty significant role in my personal practice. To me, it serves as a surrogate for the mutation burden that that a specific tumor has. And so in our cohort, the poor differentiation was the only factor predictive of disease-specific death in multivariate analysis, which I think is critical. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, it's a visual marker for a bad tumor. And depth of invasion, I almost conceptualize as giving the tumor access to the conduits of spread, whether it be nerves, whether it be lymphovascular spread. And that's the two factors that I most key in. You know, I think the important point about the AJCC 8th edition is that it puts a tremendous importance on tumor size greater than two centimeters in horizontal width. Absolutely. And if you look at our manuscript, a lot of the poor outcomes occurred in tumors smaller than two centimeters. And so seeing a small tumor doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a good player. Right. I I, uh, completely agree with you. And if you look at sort of the survival curves for T2 and T3 tumors within the new staging system, they still have significant overlap. And I think one of the reasons for that significant overlap in their survival curves or their mortality curves is the fact that we're not always accounting for the poor histologic differentiation. And a lot of the T2 cancers that end up having bad outcomes are poorly differentiated, and we currently don't have a staging system that accounts for that. 
Now let's move on. I think the um, the depth of invasion is something that we've studied in in, in many different fashions, and it's uh, reassuring to see it validated by your paper as well. We know prospectively that tumors greater than six millimeters in depth are um, more likely to have bad outcomes. But let's talk about the treatment and. Before we talk about specific surgery versus Mohs surgery versus radiation, how do you approach your patients with a high-risk squamous cell carcinoma, sort of pretending that you know it's going to be a high-risk squamous cell carcinoma, which we don't always do? You know, the, the approach to a high-risk squamous cell carcinoma patient is very nuanced. I think immunocompromised state plays a critical role. It didn't reveal itself in multivariate analysis in, in my paper. But in many cases, anecdotally, the worst that I've seen are deeply invasive squamous cell carcinomas in immunocompromised patients. The other factor is recurrent squamous cell carcinomas. Data has shown that those patients do significantly worse. Uh, They have very high rates of local recurrence, very high rates of uh, nodal metastasis. And so I start the visit with a discussion about the severity of the disease, and I usually base that on a preoperative assessment. You can gather a lot of Brigham and Women's Health staging by the clinical appearance and the PATH report. And so if I have enough factors to be a T2B before we even get started, then that's a patient that I'm already discussing, serial clinical examination, possible lymph node ultrasound, teaching the patient to examine their own lymph nodes. At present, I don't utilize sentinel lymph node biopsy in high-risk squamous cell carcinoma. And my decision to do that is largely based on the way I was trained, and secondly, information that this paper revealed. We had 31 lymph node metastases. 30 of them were locally salvaged with radical neck dissection plus or minus radiation. And so in our population of high-risk squamous cell carcinomas treated with Mohs, we achieved local salvage rate of greater than 95%. In the populations that were used to validate the Brigham and Women's in Health uh, staging system, the disease-specific deaths, 85% of them were from uncontrolled loco-regional disease. I think that's one of the true benefits of our technique. I do utilize postoperative radiation in patients that have had perineural invasion and immunocompromised state or a recurrent tumor that has perineural invasion, or if I have tracked perineural invasion down a named nerve, then those are the instances that I recommend postoperative adjuvant radiation. It's just such an interesting uh, topic sort of from start to finish if we acknowledge all the things that we don't know. And then it becomes a really provocative question, is Mohs surgery an appropriate monotherapy? Because a lot of the data we have, and we don't have much data, is based not around how the patients were treated at the primary site. It's really about meeting certain tumor-specific inclusion criteria. And I have to be honest that I did not notice the distribution of treatments in the initial pilot study that Dr. Schmoltz published with only 25% utilizing Mohs surgery. I've now looked in a couple of other manuscripts of high-risk squamous cell carcinoma and including in our own institution, and Mohs surgery tends to be somewhat 
underrepresented. And I think there's a learning curve amongst uh, you, myself, and our colleagues where we're using it more now even for locally advanced and potentially aggressive squamous cell carcinoma. So I think for our listeners, it's a really important take-home point to appreciate that we don't have a single study that uniformly looks at patients only treated with Mohs surgery. We tend to lump patients that are treated with numerous modalities, but meet inclusion criteria based on their tumor presentation. And I know in your study, you mentioned uh, Glenn Goldman's paper from Vermont, where he, a number of years ago, sort of presented his experience with high-risk squamous cell carcinoma. And that certainly gives us some um, reassurance that other people are choosing a similar approach, but we still lack big studies to support either modality of treatment, Mohs surgery or Mohs surgery plus something else. I think it's very center-specific. It, it's very dependent on the clinical resources that you have at your exposure. And one of the values that I found in our manuscript is that a private practice in Pittsburgh, albeit a very uh, academically-oriented private practice, probably is more generalizable to the population at large than perhaps a single-site academic center, the size and scope of the patients seen at Harvard. And so I think there's more literature coming down the pipeline in support of Mohs micrographic surgery as a monotherapy for, for high-risk squamous cell carcinoma. Campoli, Zatelli, and Broadland many years ago published uh, prospectively the number of perineural invasion cases that they saw in squamous cell carcinoma, and there's a five-year follow-up coming out soon being worked on by my co-fellow, A.J. Shedderer, that's going to show, she said that I could present some of her findings, that show that through multivariate analysis, Bresla depth was the only predictive factor for local recurrence, nodal metastasis, and disease-specific depth. And her numbers showed that, you know, we can bend down the curves, just like my paper did. And Glenn Goldman's numbers are very, very similar to the ones that we present in this manuscript. That's not to say that other modalities, other treatments, other specialties, and imaging, and potentially even central lymph node biopsy don't play a role in select patients. These papers do come out in strong support for Mohs micrographic surgery. Right. I, I think it's interesting to sort of look at different centers and different patient populations. I think in your study, it was about 10% immunosuppressed. Is that right? That's right. Significantly lower than what I think Brigham and women had 14 or 15%. And during my time at the Cleveland Clinic, we were encountering between 18 and 20% immunosuppressed patients. And I have found that that still for me is one of the biggest poor prognostic features. And of course, because it's a patient rather than tumor specific feature, it's not something that's routinely incorporated into staging system. And so I think that we need additional studies looking at that immunosuppressed population. We know that when those immunosuppressed patients develop skin cancers or when those immunosuppressed patients have local or regional recurrences from their squamous cell carcinoma, they do far worse than immunocompetent cohorts. So I think the two factors that either excluded or slightly lower in your study, meaning the immunosuppressed population, and then recurrence, which I understand were excluded because they weren't included in the Brigham and Women papers either. I think those are two really important features when I make the final decision whether or not to refer a patient for adjuvant uh, radiation therapy. It's, does this patient have uh, immunosuppression? 
And has this patient had a prior recurrence or is this a recurrent skin cancer that I'm, I'm treating? And it sounds like you would agree with those being two things that may prompt you to be a little bit more aggressive in your population. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Well, let's just review here if there's anything else. Um, what else from, from your standpoint? Are there other things that you'd want your listeners to, to appreciate about the, the paper? Was there anything surprising to you in the study or anything that thereafter has changed your management more dramatically than you would have anticipated? I was pleasantly surprised by the low number of patients that we lost to advanced local regional disease. At UT Southwestern in Dallas, from outside practices, we saw a tremendous number of advanced local regional disease. And so, to me, the fact that Mohs micrographic surgery was used in these cohorts, it seems like it just puts a break in the natural progression of the disease. We're able to mitigate a tremendous number of events. And it served as reinforcement to the technique that I was taught in fellowship. Obviously, we do a very thorough lymph node examination. We teach the patient how to perform the exam on themselves, and then we have them perform it once weekly. And we follow that patient either every two or three months, if possible. And in doing so, our local salvage rate was very strong. The disease-specific death of distant metastasis is still dismal. You know, six of seven patients with distant metastasis were lost. And so what I would be fascinated to see is uh, a gene expression profile test that can help us parse out even further these T2B and T3 patients and see if there's a, a way to identify a cohort that would benefit from an earlier intervention. A gene expression profile test for high-risk squamous cell carcinoma is in the works. I think it's being used to great effect in melanoma, and you're starting to see it serve as a way for 2B melanomas and 3A melanomas be included in trials because of their positive gene expression profile test. And so to me, just as anaplasia and poor differentiation serve as a marker for heavy mutational burden, a gene expression profile test that confirms that may be able to parse out the patients that we do need to be more aggressive about. I completely agree. I think for us, it's a it's a very exciting time to be privileged to take care of these patients with high-risk squamous cell carcinoma. I look forward to your future studies on the topic. I uh, want to dive deeper into the topic myself and explore how Mohs surgery does in these high-risk patients and what exactly the role of adjuvant radiation therapy needs to be. Jordi, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I want to thank our listeners for their attention. Um, the article that we discussed today will be published in press soon. It's also going to be included in the Mose College Reference Library, which is accessible through the Mose College website. I remind all of our listeners to please share this podcast with their colleagues and trainees. Let us know how we are doing and who you'd like to have on the show by contacting us at info at I want to recognize Brett Kelt, who is the uh, Senior Communications Director for the Mose College for all the behind-the-scene work that he's been doing for these first very successful podcasts. And I look forward to speaking with everybody in the next month. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.